Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be changing things up for the next while. I was going to say short while, but it probably isn't going to be short while. 2019 is going to be a year of adjusting and transitioning, so I figure we might as well start the new year that way. This Sunday and for the next several months, we are going to be considering some basic theology. We're going to be doing it differently from a systematic theology study, not even a thematic theology study. What we are going to do is look at our core beliefs. We're going to examine our essential beliefs, which is why I've titled the study or the series Essentials of the Faith. Essentials of the Faith. I do this for a couple of reasons. One, because as a board we have discussed it and we have considered the need that there is to remind us as a congregation what exactly we stand for, what we have committed to. Also, because in the past six months I've been asked by, I believe, three different individuals, how do I know if I'm going to the right church? Unfortunately, it wasn't three individuals who were attending here. Otherwise, I would have had an issue with it. And we said, I said, basically, I mean, there's, there's a lot to that question. And the primary thing is, is the word of God being proclaimed? Is it being preached? There are a few other essentials, I guess, as we consider the body that we fellowship with. And so I want to look at those essentials and to consider them. And what I've done basically is, or what I will do, is take the essentials of the faith as listed within our constitution, which is also the essentials of the faith as listed within our denomination. Basically, just simply look at it. The very first one is the Word of God is the infallible, inspired, uh, inerrant Word of God, sufficient for all situations. Basically, it is the final authority. So we're going to take that as a statement. We're going to look at it, examine it, see, is there biblical proof for this? What does it mean? How does it apply to us? What are the essentials of our faith? And that was my intention originally, was I was just going to start with the first one. And yet, it doesn't work very well because we need to first define what an essential is. And in looking at that and defining that, I came across this statement, which I apply to my life, and I hope that you do as well, and I know that our denomination does. And that is unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. And that's a really good adage, and it should be true of us that we have unity in the essentials, that we have liberty in those areas that are non-essential, and that we show love in all things. The difficulty is deciding what is an essential and what is not an essential, because quite often the conflict comes because one person holds to an essential, the other person doesn't hold that as an essential, and so you have conflict. So we are going to look at the essentials, but first, and this morning, we're going to look at what an essential is as far as definition. And we're going to take, and I had intended on taking that full adage, Unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials, and love in all things, and looking at that completely, and I only made it to the first portion of that. So I don't have three points this morning, we have only one point, and that is unity in essentials. What does that mean? And is it biblical? Or do we make lines in the sand, so to speak, which aren't biblical, even when we say we live by that, by that adage, by that statement, that we have unity in essentials, liberty and non-essentials? An essential is something that is necessary. They say that there are five essentials to life, air, water, food, shelter, and sleep. It has been said that in extreme conditions, a human can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. And it didn't say how long he could survive without sleep, and I don't personally want to find out. These things are essential. They are absolutely necessary. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines essential as something necessary, indispensable, or unavoidable. I particularly like 
the word indispensable, something that is absolutely indispensable. And in those things, we are to have unity. By an essential of the faith, I mean something that is paramount within our belief. These are things that are non-negotiable. These are are things that we must not waver on or surrender. They are absolutes. These are things that we must stand upon and defend 100%. We look at essentials. We say, these are things that I would be willing to die for. And the very first one that's listed is a good one. The inerrancy, the inspiration of the Word of God. This is something we must not waver on. We must must not yield on that the Word of God is God-breathed. And we'll look at other essentials as we progress. Some have taken the what they call the five solas as their essentials. And I would be fine with that. The five solas are five Latin phrases or slogans that emerged during the Reformation to summarize the Reformers' theological convictions about the essentials of Christianity. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola Fide, faith alone. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola Grazia, Grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Solas Christas. That's a good one. Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And the fifth one being soli del gloria, to the glory of God alone. The Reformers believed that there were other essentials as well, and we are going to look at some other essentials, but their response in putting together those five solas was a response to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and so stood in direct contrast with the Catholic Church. So what we are going to do for this series is examine the essentials that our denomination has laid out and keeping in mind that as we work through these, that adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. Now I had hoped to jump right into the examination of the essentials. And then I had hoped to jump into all three of those things, but this morning we're just going to look at unity in essentials. It is necessary to be united. And we could ask, is it really? Why can't we be united in everything? Or why can't we be united in nothing? One or the other. We have a tendency of going one way or the other, don't we? And maybe you've noticed this in your life or in others around you, that they make a broad array of things absolutely essential. And if you do not line up with them within every point, and some of them are good doctrines that should be discussed, should be debated, should be shared, but they make a, li- a list or a litany of, of 50 things with which you must agree. And if you don't agree, then they will withdraw themselves from fellowship from you. And we don't want to do that. We want to make the list that is the essentials that we are united in as, as narrow as possible. And whether we're united or whether it is areas in which we can have liberty, we absolutely want to speak and to act, to share in love. Is it necessary to be united in essentials? Does that in itself dictate as well that where we are not in agreement on essentials, there must be division? Because if you say we are united in essentials and there are Things that people look at and say, well, that's not an essential. That's something I could let go of. Does that dictate that there must then be division? And I believe, and I believe that the Word of God declares that as well. If someone does not believe that the Word of God is actually the Word of God, that's a good area for division. You don't want to join yourself together with them and and attempt to minister with somebody who has a secondary or a different standard of the authority of the Word of God. So this morning, unity in essentials. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1 to 6. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us in this time. Guide us in this study. Lord, give us hearts that are open and sensitive to your directing. We thank you that you are still speaking through your word by your Holy Spirit. And so in this time, Lord, we ask you would speak to us. Give us a will to follow you. Give us the understanding to grasp truth. Give us a longing for, a passion for truth. Give us a love as well. A love for truth, but a love for one another. That regardless of of what path we may be walking, and regardless of whether we are united or not united, that we would demonstrate, that we would show the love of God to us, to everyone. We recognize that sometimes speaking the truth in love is not easy. And so in those areas we disagree with particularly, we ask that you would give us grace and mercy and compassion, tenderness in how we say what we say, why we say what we say. In areas we are united on, these are essentials, Lord, I ask that you would cause, continue to cause and enable unity within the body of Christ so that we may be effectively accomplishing what you call us to accomplish. Lord, I ask that you would give me wisdom and understanding as I present your word. Give me the ability to communicate clearly and effectively. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. Paul has addressed this letter to the saints that are in Ephesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. So this is to genuine born-again believers. He has, in the first three chapters of this book, spoken of our position in Jesus Christ. We know that according to Ephesians chapter 2, that we were all born separated from God by our sin, that we were in allegiance with Satan, and then the grace of God in Jesus Christ was made known to us. And we have responded, and I pray that you have responded in faith. Thus you have been made new in Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled to God. That is who the book is to. That is who the message here is directed. And I would challenge you and encourage you, are you certain that you are in that group? That you recognize the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for you, has been poured out for you. You have turned to him, repented of your sins, and trusted in him. You know his grace as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. If that is you, This book is for you. So when it speaks about unity, you are in Christ, so you are united with those as well who are also in Christ. Now in chapter 4, Paul addresses the impact of that salvation. He starts with the admonition to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That is the call to salvation, the call to repentance and forgiveness. How does that look? How are we now to live since we have trusted Christ? Verse 2 tells us that we are to live with All lowliness, that is genuine humility, recognizing the great grace of God demonstrated towards us. We are to live, we are to walk in gentleness, that is being careful not to cause offense or hurt and not to retaliate or lash out at others. We are to walk with long suffering, that is to bear patiently with others, even to put up with the idea there being of enduring continually being provoked. 
We are to bear with one another in love. That is, to make allowances for the faults and failures of others. It is looking at others through Christ's great love for you. And lastly, we are to walk, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keep the unity. That implies that unity has already been granted. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, unity within the body has already been granted in Jesus Christ. It isn't something we have to manufacture. It is something that is already there. It is the unity of the Spirit. God has brought all those saved by grace through faith into one body, the church universal. He is the head of that body. There is unity by the Spirit because it is the body of Christ. There is no place for division over culture, language, race, or any other things to those who are in the body of Christ. Remember, the church, the body of Christ, was the bringing together of two factions which were opposing each other, the Jews and the Gentiles. They were brought together through the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That division had been going on for hundreds of years, but all those who are in Jesus Christ are part of a new group. In their union with God, they have been united with each other. In your union in Christ, you are united with everyone else who has made union, who has been brought into union with God or with Christ. The unity is there and we are challenged to keep it, endeavor to keep the unity. So to all those united in God, and I guess we would say that that is the ultimate dividing line. All those who have repented of their sins and trusted the shed blood of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and everlasting life are united in Christ. To them prayerfully you, There is, it says here in Ephesians chapter 4, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So there has to be unity among those who are children of God, and we are called to keep that unity. What is that unity based on? It is based on these essentials in Ephesians chapter 4. The first essential, there is one body. So if you are a believer, you are in it. So you have to be united. This is the body of Christ made up of all true believers from Pentecost to the rapture. Denominations or different sects and parties are irrelevant to this one body. You're either part of it or you're not. And if you are part, it says very clearly, live accordingly. There is one spirit, the same Holy Spirit who indwells each believer individually also indwells the body of Christ corporately. We are united in this one spirit, so live accordingly. There is one hope of your calling. Every member of the church is called to one destiny, to be with Jesus Christ, to be like him, to share in his glory endlessly. The one hope includes all that awaits the saints at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereafter. We are united. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are united in this hope. So live accordingly. There is one Lord. That is, there is only one ruler over you and I. If you are trusting in Christ, he is supreme. He is master. He truly is Lord. We are united in our submission to him. So live accordingly. There is one faith. It's saying that there is one system of belief, one body of doctrine. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says it is once for all delivered to the saints. The truth It is preserved for us in the New Testament. 
This is God's plan of salvation. This is the work of God. There is no other way to be saved except believing in Jesus Christ. There is no other system. There is no other religion that will bring salvation. There is no other way that man can be restored to right relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. This is exclusive. Having been saved into this one faith, we are united in this one faith, so live accordingly. He goes on and says, there is one baptism. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit by which you are immersed or brought into Jesus Christ. That baptism takes place the moment you are justified by the grace of God and declared righteous through his sacrificial death in your place. Physical baptism is not a second baptism, but the external representation of that internal spiritual baptism that has already taken place for the child of God. In that external representation of the internal reality, we witness to what has taken place inside, internally. We confess our identification with Jesus Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. We proclaim in physical baptism our determination to walk in newness of life. All genuine believers have experienced this one baptism. We are united in it, so live accordingly. It goes on, there is one God. Every child of God recognizes one God and Father of all the redeemed. You and I and every single person who has trusted in Jesus Christ from Pentecost until now, until Christ comes again, has been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, we have one Father, and our one Father is above all and through all and in you all. We are united in him. We are told here, to live accordingly. Unity. Believer, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is unity brought by the Spirit. The Spirit is that peace bond uniting us together with Christ and with one another so we are to walk in that unity. So, there is unity. It is clearly expressed here, and it is in the essentials. Unity centers around the one true God as expressed in each person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Unity centers around the church. All those who are genuine, born-again believers are part of that one body. Unity centers around the one true faith, the truth of the doctrine clearly laid out in the Word of God. You get where I'm going with this. There is unity. That unity is centered in the gospel, which covers the character and work of God. It covers the one faith. It covers the one baptism and the one body. We are united and we are to keep that unity of the Spirit. Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 15, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it has been declared to me concerning my brethren by those of Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul is instructing the church to not allow division to arise within the church, within 
the local visible body of believers. We are to be, he says, perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That is, we are to have the mind of Christ and to be united in it. We are to think the same and discern the same. Now that brings up a bit of an issue. Does that mean that we are all, the moment we become believers, all to be absolutely identical, to have no variations within us? No, that doesn't make sense. It's not as if when we trust Christ, we lose our unique characteristics or we enter some amalgamated mind think, nor is it that the moment we trust Christ, we are all at the same lofty level of maturity that has resolved every differing opinion. But about those things of greatest importance, about the essentials, we are to have complete unity. And Paul gives an example. There were people in the church who were elevating men over Jesus Christ. People who were, in a sense, ignoring the revealed truth that there is one Lord, from Ephesians chapter 4. These people were replacing the supremacy of Jesus Christ with the supremacy of some other human leader. And Paul says that that should not happen. Even of himself, he says, don't make me the supreme leader. Don't say you were baptized in my name. Follow Christ. Now there's a bit of an anomaly in those verses there. Some of the people were saying, I am of Christ. So he says, don't say, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. There's some even there saying, I am of Christ. You would have thought that Paul would have said, these are the ones who are getting it right. These guys say, I am of Christ. You should be like them. But he doesn't. I think it's likely because they did so with a bit of a snide attitude. I don't know if you've ever run into this before. Someone who says, I don't belong to a denomination. I just follow Jesus Christ. And it's like they're implying that anyone who does belong to a denomination can't really belong to Jesus Christ. It's the same with a person or organization having or not having a statement of faith. I've occasionally asked an individual or a group what their statement of faith was, and at least once I have gotten this response, and it just, it irks me. I've gotten this response literally. Oh, we just go by the Bible. This is our statement of faith. Well, that's a bit of a ridiculous statement. It implies that they fully understand and apply exactly all the Word of God and anyone who has an actual statement of faith, which the idea of a statement of faith is that you're to take and condense, especially down to essentials. But it implies that anyone who does have a statement of faith isn't actually doing it right. And Paul is saying, stop with the faction. Stop elevating man to the supreme position. Don't allow there to be allegiances based on man. Don't even allow your self-righteous assertions to be elevated to supremacy over Christ. But be united under Christ. Our allegiance must be to Christ. There is only one Lord. We are united in him. And interesting, what was the issue there that divided them? It was over baptism, and not even the form of baptism, which could be a contentious issue, but still not an essential issue. But who baptized them? And what's Paul's response? I am so thankful I didn't baptize any of you, <laughs> except a couple of you that I, you know, I don't want to forget. Because it wasn't about baptism or who performed it that they were supposed to be united in. And Paul goes on to say that that wasn't my mandate. Baptism is important, absolutely, but Paul says just a little bit further there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul is essentially telling them to be united in the essentials and not to allow non-essentials to divide them. Don't get caught up in a division over a non-essential. The focus of this part of the message being unity and essentials, we're gonna, we are going to focus on that. We are united under Christ's lordship. Now we've looked at what we are to be united in briefly. The essentials. Basically, those essentials that the word of God proclaims as essential. That which is indispensable according to the word of God. And we will look further on at a lot of non-essentials form of worship, style of worship. I mean, there, there is a lot, whether you're a Calvinist or whether you're Arminianist. Did you know any of the words in the Bible and you're not supposed to be divided over that? There's a lot of subjects over which the church has divided people over which we are not supposed to divide ourselves. We're supposed to be united in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you have to spend all of your time with those who hold a differing view in some area, hyper-charismatic hyper or hyper-conservative. It's not an essential according to the word of God. Now, you don't have to spend all your time in a charismatic church if you're not charismatic. That only makes sense. That's a good thing. There are different denominations. But we need to be careful in defining what are essentials and not allowing the body of Christ to have factions. And when it speaks about divisions there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it literally means a faction or a schism, a rending, a tearing. We are not to allow there to be a tearing within the body of Christ. That is, all those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are to have unity within the family. It's very simple. But we aren't actually, and this is kind of where it gets difficult for us sometimes, we aren't to have unity outside of the family. We're to have unity in the family, not unity outside of the family. We're supposed to be winning the lost to the Lord and bringing them into the family so that we can have unity in Jesus Christ, not joining ourselves to them and pretending we're on the same page. The path that the world is walking is the way of the world. And even their good deeds will end in death apart from the saving grace of God. As a matter of fact, their good deeds, this is the good deeds of those who are unregenerate, those who have not trusted Jesus Christ, their good deeds may assure their death because they end up trusting in the good deeds that they are doing rather than in Jesus Christ. They cloak their spiritual deadness with a system of self-righteousness called works then they trust in works and they end up in hell. Why would we want to come alongside and enable them by uniting ourselves with them when they are not truly in the light? If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a set-apart people. You are not to be joined to darkness. Even in those things that darkness considers good or, or maybe harder for us, the things that darkness is doing that we consider good. We're not to be united with them in it because light and dark don't have fellowship with one another. The light exposes the dark. It does not facilitate or join itself to the darkness. Now, don't stop doing good. We don't need to align ourselves with ungodly people or ungodly organizations to do good. We should be leading the way in doing good. And don't separate yourself from the world. Don't say, well, they're ungodly. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We aren't meant to be a little holy huddle hunkered down over here by ourselves out of touch with life around us. But when it comes to fellowship, when it comes to sharing together in the ministry, when it comes to working together without division, that is reserved for the body of Christ. That may sound exclusive 
It may even sound mean or harsh, but it isn't really. You see, we serve two different masters. Those who are of the world and those who are of Christ. How can we have unity with them, true unity with them? We have different purpose to our life, right down to the way we spend our minutes and hours and days. We are going in two opposite directions, and two people walking in opposite directions cannot walk hand in hand. And yet the church so often tries to do that. When I say we are to have unity in essentials, the unity is among those who are truly united in Jesus Christ. Unity does not extend outside of that. It can't. Christ is our unifying factor. And if we unite ourselves with those who are not in Jesus Christ, what does that do to us? It distracts us from the things that matters. It distracts us from eternal things. It takes our energy and uses it for temporal passing things. It also enables others to continue in darkness, giving it the facade of righteousness. And perhaps worst, it places the stamp of approval of believers upon works done by those in darkness. It says that we condone not just maybe that good deed, but we condone the lifestyle of those involved in that good deed and the lifestyles of those involved. The path that they are walking is the path of darkness. Colossians chapter 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is speaking to believers. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him that is in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and powers. Walk in Jesus Christ as you received him. Can you walk in Jesus Christ as you've been granted to while walking the same way as the world? He goes on to say, beware lest anyone cheat you. The idea there is defraud you. Don't let anyone rip you off spiritually. Don't accept a cheap imitation of Jesus Christ or of your Christian walk. People may try to distract you or redirect you through philosophy. The Greeks were great for that. They loved philosophy. They could philosophize themselves into thinking anything they wanted to or justify any actions they wanted to. They had a way of putting things and reasoning things that made everything look good and acceptable. And he says, don't, don't join yourself to them. Don't give in to that. Don't get caught up in the ways of the world, regardless of how appealing anyone may make it sound. Also, he says, don't get caught up in traditions of men. Now, there may be nothing wrong with philosophy or traditions, but the idea here is not to allow them to take precedence over Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone cheat you or defraud you by offering anything other than Jesus Christ. The Greeks thought they could reason their way to enlightenment. That's philosophy. The Jews thought they could work their way to heaven. That's traditions of men. And Paul warns believers not to sacrifice Christ for those empty things. Why? Because Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is, Christ is fully God. He has your life in his hands. He is sovereign. You don't need anything or anyone apart from him. He's put you into the church, so you need the church, the body of Christ, absolutely. But you don't need to accomplish what he has called you to accomplish. You do not need the assistance of those who are under the sovereignty or under the servitude to Satan. He has granted you all that you need. You are complete in him. 
Take another passage, Galatians chapter 1, 6-9. Paul says to the church, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now this is speaking specifically about what they were preaching. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that what then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The church in Galatia was being led away to a religion of works. The Jews wanted to add circumcision and rituals and feasts and festivals to the new believers. Sure, believing in Jesus is good, but you have to do this or do that as well, they were saying. And isn't that so often what many of the good things that the world is doing to and calls us to join them with today are? For those who are outside of Jesus Christ doing these good things, they think that those good things are a way to get God on their side. Or they think that they're a good way to get karma working for you. Or a way to find inner peace. We're heading in opposite directions. And so their deeds done, even as they assume that they are good, they can't be good because they are outside of Jesus Christ and they are not done in faith. So be careful not to join yourself to them. Any system of doctrine which denies the necessity of simple dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, Paul says very, very clearly, it is an accursed doctrine coming from accursed people. It is damned. It is anathema is literally the term that's used there. Do we realize that? Do we believe that? Are we discerning of the causes that we invest ourselves in or the concerns that we come alongside of? Are we diligent to not be involved in the works of darkness or are we replacing the simplicity of the gospel with man-made religion? This is an area in which we need to be very careful. I want to read one more passage and it is a harsh passage, but I pray that it will be a warning to you as it was to those to whom it was written. Second John chapter 1, 6-11 This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That was the issue of doctrine. This, he says, those who don't confess him, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourself, all believers, look to yourself that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. The primary doctrine of concern in this passage that the recipient was in danger of negating, of neglecting or of ignoring, was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh in the person of Christ. To neglect such doctrine is to deny the faith. To deny the faith is to reject the grounds upon which you were saved and put in peril your own eternal standings. And it says, the fruit of your labor, particularly the fruit of your labor. It's making it void. John warns 
that to not abide or remain steadfast in this doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection, that to not remain in this doctrine means that the person does not have God. If you deny the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you deny the work of God and you cannot have God. But he states emphatically that to have Christ, that is a right understanding and ownership of him, is to remain in both the Father and the Son. John further warns against even greeting or receiving such a one who does not have the Son. This is vital. We cannot serve God and Satan. If we assist those who are serving Satan in their endeavors, we are uniting together in labor with Satan. Now, does this mean that we are not allowed to show hospitality to sinners? Absolutely not. We should love them and share Jesus Christ with them. But if someone is a false teacher, someone is propagating denial of Christ, or even propagating that Christ is not necessary, propagating any man-made religion, anything other than salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are to have nothing to do with him or her. If we, in the knowledge, assist them, it says we share in their evil deeds. That's how the verse ends. What a recrimination against the church today and the so often ungodly allegiances that we have made. Once again, it's not speaking about going out into the world and ministering to the world. We are to do that as the body of Christ. We aren't to live in a holy huddle. But we aren't to join ourselves to another group and say that we have unity when they aren't in Jesus Christ or when they deny the person of Jesus Christ or they deny that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where it gets really, really narrow in those solas, those things alone, faith alone, grace alone. Because we are prone to join ourselves to organizations or groups that say, yes, you're saved by faith plus something. And the moment a person says plus to that something, they are not truly in Jesus Christ. Now, there may be people in that organization that are in Jesus Christ, and I don't know that, and you don't know that, and it's hard to discern. But as an organization, we can discern absolutely. Anyone who says that you must have something other than faith in the grace of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ has not been born again of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, or it is said of Christ, that there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you think that you can join yourself to a group, to an organization, or to an individual and minister with them when they deny that essential, you're not uniting within the body of Christ. You're trying to unite to that which is outside the body of Christ. And that must not be so. We need to be discerning. We need to have unity on the essentials with all those who are in Jesus Christ. But any who oppose him and preach or teach a means of salvation apart from Christ alone should never receive our hand of help. I'm not saying we cannot have business relationships with the world or that we can't be civil to those who are outside Christ. That's not it. We are to love them. We are to love those who particularly do not know Christ, praying that they would come to know him. We are to care for them. We are to preach Christ to them. 
We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world today, but we must not unite with those who deny the central and essential doctrines of the Word of God. We're not on the same team. But to those on the same team, to those united in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, to those who are of the one faith and own Christ as the one Lord, we are united by the Spirit, and we are to keep the unity of the Spirit. That unity of the Spirit must be unity in the essentials of the Word of God. And frankly, that should not be an extensive list, the list of essentials. Ephesians 4, list 7, we will discover maybe one or two more that flow from that of necessity. But don't make everything an essential. Keep it simple, keep them few. Be quick to come alongside and support one another as we are united by these essentials. An essential is a central truth, which we cannot deny or change without changing or denying who God is and what he has done. We absolutely must be united with other children of God who hold these essentials to be true. And we absolutely must not unite ourselves with those who deny these absolute essential truths. I share that and prayerfully have shown that from the Word of God, so that as we begin to examine what the essentials of the faith are, we come with the ability and willingness to unite where we are united in Christ and to divide where we are divided and to not blur the lines as we are so often tempted to do for the sake of comfort, expediency, or fear of being intolerant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come of ex- with excellence of speech, of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul centered on the essentials. Paul had unity with the body of Christ on the essentials. We need to define and understand what the essentials are and to have unity within the body. Unity on the essentials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in this area. I pray that we would not be harsh, rude, or condemning, but that we would take firm stance upon the word of God and that what you declare to be indispensable, we would refuse to yield. And yet recognizing that we have been united with all those who truly are in Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that as we do so, as we work together, as we serve together, as we minister together the truth of the Word of God, may you accomplish great and mighty things. May your name be exalted. May you be lifted up and and adored. May many come to know you, to call you Lord and Savior. May many who currently are not yet part of the family, may they be joined to the family. The kingdom of God would be expanded. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.